Good afternoon. It's Friday the 29th of April 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Cold News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, well, we'll get straight on uh, with Ukraine. And uh, well, the headlines uh, this morning, British man Scott Sibley killed in Ukraine and second UK national missing. So this was announced yesterday as a name uh, wasn't initially released. Uh, but the Independent here saying tributes have been paid to Scott Sibley. Uh, who's been named locally as the man who has died, uh, and the identity of the missing person remains unknown. Uh, he's understood to be a veteran of the British Army uh, and is the first British national known to have been killed in Ukraine since the uh, invasion by Russia. Uh, a spokesperson for the Foreign Office said, we can confirm that a British national has been killed in Ukraine and are supporting their family uh, and uh, various ex-colleagues and so on, uh, referring to him as a fallen hero one hell of a beautiful guy, and so on. But uh, the question is, Patrick, should he have been there in the first place? Well, the, that's one question. The other question is, you know, the uh, early reports that we had talked about weeks ago about uh, a so-called training base for the Ukrainian uh, Foreign Legion was hit uh, by a Russian missile, uh, and a number of people were killed. Reportedly, a number of foreigners were killed, and initial reports indicated that some of those were British. Okay, so that's based on the past reporting. So were they on the books or off the books? Were they right. British that weren't supposed to be there or not supposed to be officially uh, there? There's also reports circulating, uh, but from, I believe it's out of the Russian MOD or other s similar chatter I've seen that uh, there's SAS detachment uh, in Western Ukraine, two of them. Right. Uh, so, I mean, we're obviously not gonna be told any of this. <laughs> Uh, publicly, uh, we're just meant to, to think that uh, there's not much going on. There's a few mercenaries and that's about it. But the reality is uh, Britain and the US and some other NATO countries are deeply involved, have personnel on the ground. It, it, I'd be very surprised if they didn't right. on, on whatever capacity, Mike, official or unofficial. Um, so that independent article uh, said that the Foreign Office has been advising British nationals against traveling to Ukraine since February. A warning of a real risk to life. Uh, but then they go on to say that advice from ministers was muddled at first, uh, because of course Liz Truss had initially said that she would absolutely support uh, people going to Ukraine to fight with the Ukrainian forces, uh, and then had to backpedal from that. Yeah, the initial dog whistle was go go fight the good fight, and then all of a sudden they got a little pushback and they tried to revise their statements on that, pretending like that, maybe not such a good idea. Should he be branded as a hero? Um, it's just kind of an automatic assumption that if you're fighting uh, with the Ukrainian armed forces that you're on the side of good mm. uh, and everybody else is on the side of bad. Uh, but who else is in the Ukrainian armed forces? This includes a number of Nazi uh, battalions, extreme ethno-nationalist, far-right Nazi uh, battalions, not battalions, brigades, in fact, mm. based on the size of them. So this is endemic throughout the Ukrainian armed forces. So it's, it's worth pointing that out. Because uh, we obviously don't want anybody to be accused of being a Nazi sympathizer. That would be terrible. Uh, it would be. And uh, speaking of Liz Truss, well, she was speaking at uh, Mansion House uh, over the last, uh, yesterday, I think it was. And well, there was quite a speech, Patrick. And I'm just going to go through a little bit of this to discuss it with you because uh, the, the, the rhetoric is unbelievable. Um, so she said that the UK sent weapons and trained Ukrainian troops long before the war started. I wonder how they knew how to do that, that they were intent, they needed to do that. But anyway. That, uh, was, that was part of a wider, just ongoing NATO effort to arm up Ukraine and prepare it for war. 
basically. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But the world should have done more to deter the invasion. We will never make the same mistake again, she said. Uh, she went on, uh, some argue we shouldn't provide heavy weapons for fear of provoking something worse. But my view is that inaction would be the greatest provocation. This is a time for courage, not caution. Uh, so she's, I mean, it's, uh, the war drums are beating very loudly here. And we must ensure that alongside Ukraine, the Western Balkans and countries like Moldova and Georgia have the resilience and capabilities to maintain their sovereignty and freedom. Uh, NATO's open door policy is sacrosanct. If Finland and Sweden choose to join in response to Russia's aggression, uh, we must integrate them as soon as possible. And uh, Patrick, on Wednesday's programme, we were highlighting the fact that uh, uh, the US was decrying China's potential for China to put a military base uh, on the Solomon Islands uh, following the, the recent treaty between the Solomon Islands and China. Uh, and the rhetoric from the United States was exactly the same as the rhetoric from Russia with respect to Ukraine and NATO or for NATO expansion onto uh, Russia's western borders. So, so this, this position here that if Finland and, and Sweden choose to join uh, in response to Russia's aggression, well, in fact, uh, Sweden and Finland were being groomed for this before this military action by Russia began. But they're using this crisis in order to fast track uh, their membership, uh, right. cl claiming that uh, they'll be the next target, even though there's no evidence that Russia has any uh, problems with Sweden and Finland, although uh, Sweden is arming uh, the Ukrainian forces uh, with various things like anti-tank missiles. Right. So Sweden is actually directly involved in the war now. Uh, so it's it's a it's an easy step from being involved uh, in trafficking weapons into Ukraine as Sweden is doing, and then joining NATO because Sweden's already compromised. I wonder who convinced them to send those weapons in the first place. And there you have the answers to the bigger question. Well, what was uh, Ben Wallace, Liz Truss, Boris Johnson doing with the, the heads of state of those countries and their respective counterparts uh, in Ministry of Defense and, and so on? They put, they put Sweden and Finland, well, Sweden especially, into a corner where it has no choice but to join NATO to protect itself because it, it, it's been compromised by being involved in a war that uh, it has zero interest for Sweden's nat national security. And Indeed. Oh, that, that you could make that argument, of course. Sweden will say, no, no, we have an interest because we share a border with Russia. Doesn't make any sense why you'd want to join a conflict that you don't have a problem with your neighbor before that. So who, know, who, who knows what rationale they're going to come up with. But. Uh, so let's continue on with Liz then. And she went on to say, we also reject the false choice between Euro-Atlantic security and Indo-Pacific security. In the modern world, we need both. So absolutely hinting at uh, China being an enemy, a future enemy as well, already an enemy perhaps. Uh, we need a global NATO. We need a global NATO. NATO 2030, of course, which is their, their latest agenda, uh, is um, certainly moving NATO uh, to look at the uh, Indo-Pacific region. Uh, but we need a global NATO. By that, I don't mean extending the membership to those from other regions. I mean that NATO must have a global outlook ready to tackle global threats. What does that mean? That means Taiwan, doesn't it? Isn't that the, that's the that, dog? That is a, that's the dog whistle in this case. Yeah. That's the dog whistle for Taiwan. So NATO, uh, instead of uh, rolling back to where it should be as a North Atlantic treaty, a post-World War II, uh, a Cold War treaty, it's wanting to extend its remit now into the Pacific. And is, suppose they start wanting to gobble up new members uh, as well. You know, an attack on one is an attack on all. And uh, the open door policy is sacrosanct. How can you say anything is sacrosanct in a, a world that where the reality is 
it's great power politics. And NATO membership, and which is tied to this Article 5 trap mm. that the, the UK and the US especially keep touting, and Jan Stoltenberg as well, they keep repeating that over and over, um, that's designed to start wars. That's not designed to prevent wars. And I might add as well, uh, the foreign secretary is saying that uh, you know, we, we could have deterred the invasion by arming them more. Uh, you can make the equal argument that it was the militarization of Ukraine and also the uh, goading it into joining NATO, putting it into that, that conversation that uh, helped to accelerate the conflict. And also the uh, total abrogation of the UK, the US, and especially the EU partners, Germany and France, of completely sabotaging the Minsk Accords, which were, uh, the resolution was passed by the UN Security Council, right. 2202, that the Minsk Accords was the de facto peace process. And all of these people who are screaming and going hysterical now about Russia, 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 uh, they did nothing uh, to make the, to realize the Minsk Peace Accords. They are derelict uh, in their duty as diplomats. Uh, and if that was their interest is peace, it clearly, it looks like they've done everything uh, to, to, to draw Russia in uh, to the conflict as well. Russia, if you listen to the Russian foreign ministry, they're very clear. We, they, they said Minsk failed. We waited eight years. Mm -hmm. uh, we felt we had no choice. There was an impending potential genocide in Donbass. That's not an exaggeration when you consider that Ukraine armed forces had uh, uh, piled up 60,000 of their top uh, troops and special forces and battalions right up there against Donbass preparing for what looked like a blitzkrieg in March or April. Is this why Russia moved so quickly? It's quite possible that that's the case. You can't take this wider context away. You can't just strip all the context out of this and say, oh, it's a violation of international law. There was a lot more going on before the conflict, right. and there's a lot more going on still now. And it's totally being ignored by the Western mainstream media and, of course, naturally by our politicians. Yes. So uh, back to Liz Truss then. And uh, she said that countries must play by the rules, and that includes China. Uh, Beijing has not condemned Russia's, uh, Russian aggression or its war crimes. Uh, Russian exports to China rose by almost a third in the first quarter of this year. <clears throat> they are commenting on, on who should or shouldn't be a member of NATO. Uh, and they're rapidly building a military capable of projecting power deep into areas of European strategic interest. So if there's any doubt that uh, whatever conflict there is going on with Russia at the moment, there is also going to be conflict uh, with China in the not too distant future. Uh, just put that right out of your minds because she's stating what the policy is. Uh, but China is not impervious by taking about the rise, sorry, by talking about the rise of China as inevitable. We're doing China's work for it. In fact, their rise isn't inevitable. They will not continue to rise if they don't play by the rules. Uh, the, she's invoking the rules-based rules. international order, which yes. is we make the rules, and if you don't abide by them, we uh, bomb you. Yeah, we, we we'll bomb you, or we'll uh, you know we'll goad you into attacking one of our new members. Yes. Uh, so China needs trade with the G7. We represent half of the global economy, and we have choices. We have shown that Russia, the we've shown with Russia, the kind of choices we're prepared to make when international rules are violated. Uh, that brings on to the final point, which is that our, our prosperity and security must be built on a network of strong partnerships. This is what I've described as the network of liberty. <laughs> yes, indeed. 
In a world where malign actors are trying to undermine multilateral institutions, we know that a bilateral and plurilateral groups will play an, a greater role. Partnerships like NATO, the G7 and Commonwealth are vital. Uh, we should keep strengthening our NATO alliance with bonds around the world, like the UK-led Joint Expeditionary Force, the Five Eyes and the AUKUS partnership that we have with the US and Australia. She didn't say we'll keep strengthening the NATO alliance. It's our NATO alliance. Yeah. They view this, Britain views this, the British government rather views this as being theirs well, to play with. It's it, their toy. It basically is. NATO is a creature of the United States and, and Britain. It's designed to keep the US which is the muscle, Britain's the brains, America's the muscle. NATO is designed to have America be able to insert its hand into the glove of European military and foreign affairs. And it's, it'll be directed by America's local partner, which is Britain, okay? This is why NATO exists. It also exists in order to subdue and keep the rest of the uh, European countries who are members under control mm -hmm. and under the direction of Washington with the help of London. So it's a bit of a tag team uh, effort between Washington uh, and London. And it also allows them to act uh, outside of international law, as they have done many times in Libya, in Yugoslavia, uh, in Afghanistan as well. Also, we'll even mention Iraq because that was effectively a NATO operation. Right. Uh, just unofficially. And what about the war against Yemen, which has been prosecuted since March of 2015, mm. where Britain's been deeply involved in that from the beginning? Of course, the United States is. Why aren't there any sanctions uh, against the U.S., against Britain? What about Israel and Palestine? Should Israel be sanctioned? Are they in violation of the rules-based international order? Certainly Israel, the United States, the U.K., France, uh, and anyone else, Norway, who did a lot of bombing against Libya. Mm. That was a completely illegal operation. Libya is a failed state, a slave market uh, in, in Benghazi. You know, what happened there? Why aren't we sanctioning all these countries? They've all uh, violated the rules-based international order. Shock, horror. Oh, my goodness. Let's get our pins out and let's virtue signal about this. You know, why is th this, the double standard, Yugoslavia? That country is ripped into pieces. And, but, but what came out of Yugoslavia is Kosovo, right? Right. Uh, which, which does Britain recognize Kosovo? I believe it does. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the difference between Kosovo and the Donbass then? I put that argument out to the chat room and you can, you can debate about it. that. Yes. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, okay. Well, you were talking about Article 5 of NATO and uh, all for one and one for all and all this kind of thing. This next one is uh, hilarious. The G7 should act as an economic NATO collectively defending our uh, prosperity. If the economy of a partner is being targeted by an aggressive regime, we should act to support them all for one and one for all, she said. So uh, well, it's not just going to be, uh, it, it's, it's basically hybrid warfare, all uh, sp full spectrum Sanctions. Sanctions, the works. So they want to weaponize the economy through yes. the G7. Yes. This is hugely dangerous. Um, this is uh, another level. Yes. This is another level. So in the economic warfare uh, eventually leads to military warfare. Study your history books. How did Japan get into the Second World War? We keep repeating this point, but it's mm. actually a fact. It was through economic warfare that Japan eventually felt it had no choice. Right. It was backed into a corner and the rest... Uh, is history. Is this, well, some people want to see history repeated, clearly. Clearly. Uh, so she goes on, uh, the aggressors are prepared to be bold. We must be bolder. That is how across the globe we will win 
this new area of peace, security and prosperity. So we're, by prosecuting wars around the country, we are going to generate a new era of peace, security and prosperity. This is brilliant stuff. Now, it should be said, Liz Truss, of course, is the mouthpiece here, Patrick, but she is uh, expressing British foreign policy uh, through the foreign office, the foreign office policy, this, as it were. This is the next level of, quote, global Britain, isn't it? Right. This is the militarized or the disruptive uh, level of, of global Britain. Of course, none of this is possible unless you've got the United States standing behind you carrying a massive stick. <laughs> so it's very easy to make these sort of speeches when you know you've got Washington uh, behind you ready to sort of back up everything that's being said. Maybe that's where the speech is coming from. Who knows? I, I don't think so. I think it's definitely, um, it's being midwifed uh, right here. Indeed. Uh, and uh, well, if you're in any doubt that it's not just Liz Truss, but the Foreign Office as a whole, let's bring uh, Nit, Nick Whittington, Nick, sorry, Nit, I'll try again, Nick Whittingham uh, on screen. He's the British ambassador to Guatemala and Honduras. And I just chose him because this applies to, to most of the uh, uh, ambassadors putting out similar kinds of rhetoric. Uh, so he's he is inviting Guatemala to embrace, and I, I quote, to embrace a reboot in the free world's approach to tackling global aggressors in the wake of the Ukraine crisis. Uh, and so this is what he had to say. The Ukraine war should be a catalyst for rebooting, remodeling, and recasting a global security architecture that has failed Ukraine. Right, so this is, uh, this is Britain's foreign policy uh, right here in one sentence. The, this new approach melds hard security and economic security, builds stronger global alliances, and recognizes we're seeing the return of geopolitics. Um, and so what are they talking about? Stronger defense, boosting economic security, building a stronger network of alliances. This is just echoing Liz Truss's speech. So that uh, policy uh, has just gone right through the uh, the Foreign Office and it's all being pushed as hard as possible by every minion. More war. More war. More war. We need more war. Um, so <clears throat> here's the Times. And the headline is, uh, sending Ukraine weapons risks security uh, of Europe, Russia tells NATO, but that wasn't the original headline. The original headline was the fact that, uh, I can't remember the exact words of it, but, but the subhead that you see on screen there was what the original headline was about. Liz Truss fears, uh, sorry, war will last for years. Well, of course it will last for years because, she, and it's not a fear of hers, She's organizing that it lasts for years. She's organizing that it lasts for years through the rhetoric that we've just talked about and through the, the, the shipping of arms and armaments into the war zone. That's right. Keep flooding Ukraine with weapons. And uh, meanwhile, you know, Ukrainians' armed forces are getting smaller um, by the day, uh, as is Ukrainian territory. The longer this goes on, and we'll talk about this regarding Moldova and Transnistria in a minute, but the longer this conflict goes on, as the U.S. and Britain want it to, they want it to go on as long as possible. It's a great payday for the arms manufacturers, by the way. They're doing very well, like the vaccine companies were during the pandemic. But the longer it goes on, the, 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 the smaller the Ukrainian military is going to become. The, the smaller Ukraine is going to come. We're sorry, but the, the more they fight and the more, the more that Ukraine is launching attacks into the Russian territory that we've seen over the last two weeks, right. which is being encouraged by, yes. by Britain, um, that's only going to guarantee that it's going to go longer. Uh, so where, where are our advisors telling maybe Kiev, hey, maybe we should sit down and negotiate some sort of settlement? They're not doing that. They're saying, don't negotiate. Keep fighting. We'll keep giving you the weapons. 
They have a complete sociopathic actor comedian mm -hmm. who's in charge of that, who looks like he's straight out of a 80s B movie with a banana republic in Central America wearing the green undershirt like he's at war all the time. I mean, this is the Zelensky uh, uh, stage show. It's ridiculous. But what the sad part is, is for Ukrainians, it means their country is just going to end up getting carved up. And isn't that what the Europeans wanted from the beginning anyway? Because they're going to want their peace too. Yes. And they'll get, they may get their peace. Uh, Poland is, uh, we, we, we aren't going to talk about this because we don't have the story in front of it, but there are, there are leaked intelligence that's in the news about the idea that Poland might want to annex part of Western Ukraine is something you might want to cover maybe later, later. Ne next week. Yes. But that's, that's the type of thing, that, that sort of horse trading is what Europe does best. Uh, in these sort of situations. That's what they've done throughout history. And my guess is that's what they'd like to do here. Yes. Okay. Well, let's uh, look at what the British Army is up to now then. Um, so uh, the Ministry of Defense pushed uh, this out this morning uh, and so 8,000 troops heading over onto the continent. Uh, but on the basis of exercises is the justification for it. Um, so uh, a couple of exercises uh, and uh, they will see 72 Challenger tanks uh, 12 AS-90 tracked uh, artillery guns, 120 warrior armoured vehicles, deploy tens of thousands of troops from NATO and the Joint Expeditionary Force taking part. Uh, so we've got uh, Exercise Hedgehog, uh, and that's going to see the Royal Welsh Battle Group and the Royal Tank Regiment exercising in the Estonia-Latvia border, uh, and alongside 16,000 NATO troops. What is Russia supposed to make of that? Well, this, this means that they're preparing for war. I mean, this, this is in trying to bring it to the, the Baltic states. Um, so, you know, the, NATO is preparing a multi-front war, or at least to provoke Russia on multiple fronts in order to possibly even distract it in order to get right. some other objective achieved somewhere else. This is what NATO is planning right now. It's not to have any sort of military victory uh, in Ukraine, but it's to provoke Russia in order to get something else to happen or maybe to stymie uh, Russian designs on uh, building a land bridge from the Donbass right. to Transnistria, for instance. So maybe something centered around Odessa, I would imagine. Okay. And alongside Exercise Hedgehog, the more sensibly named Exercise De Defender, uh, that's taking place in Poland. Uh, that's ongoing at the moment and will go on till the end of May. A thousand soldiers from the King's Royal Hussars uh, uh, and so on. Uh, and this uh, is also involving NATO's forward holding base in Germany. So uh, lots going on there. Let's see what uh, Ben Wallace had to say. The security of Europe has never been more important. Operating across Europe, the British Army will stand alongside partners, combining our capabilities and shared values, promoting peace and security. So again, here's another uh, Secretary of State, this time for defense, uh, telling us that by being warlike, we're promoting peace and security. It's, it's real uh, Orwellian stuff. Yeah, uh, we're getting used to this sort of uh, double speak. There's more to come, don't worry. Uh, and uh, just uh, speaking of Poland, uh, this is uh, James Heapy, of course, Defence Minister, uh, giving a briefing to a few uh, soldiers there in Poland because, we, as we mentioned on Wednesday's programme, uh, Poland and the UK signed an agreement over uh, air defence systems. And I just thought that was quite an amusing photograph because if you look carefully, uh, there are not many of those guys actually interested in the slightest bit. The, the guy second from the right, he's sort of in another in a dream world. The third guy from the right, well, he's asleep. Uh, the fourth guy, well, if you can see, they don't care. <laughs> I mean, Pol Poland's armed forces are actually incredibly small. 
yes. uh, for a country so populated um, as Poland. I don't know what the, what is the population of uh, Poland. Oh, moment? I don't know off the top of my head. Was isn't around uh, uh, forty five million or something like this? Could well be. Yes. And that's it. But you know they have a in, in terms of ready armed forces, it's incredibly small. I mean, do they even have hundred thousand? Um, even to no. that level? I, I, I don't know. I don't think so. No, no, that, that's why they're screaming so loud for, for U.S. troops to be permanently stationed there. I mean, that's so, that, that's why they've invited the United so, States in. So if Russia wanted to engage Poland, um, it you know, even if you threw in a bunch of battalions from Britain and the U.S., whatever, it's it's a joke. Yes. You know, Poland can't defend itself. So why, why are they using Poland as cannon fodder? This, Maybe a question the Polish need to ask themselves: Why are the U.S. using you as cannon fodder uh, in this? And they've been positioning you uh, as cannon fodder now for what the last 10, 15 years. years. It's incredible that the penny hasn't dropped yet. But um, there you are. Uh, well, let's come on to the Moldova then. So this is this is where we think uh, possibly the conflict might be heading. Uh, we'll show you a map of this region in a second. Uh, but this is Moldova, and uh, the, NATO has been courting Moldova, Mike, um, for for a long time. Right. I'm sure they'd love to have that in their trophy case. Um, but Moldova is is also uh, a Russian uh, speaking culturally. It's Russian. Um, it's definitely within the Russian world, but it's caught somewhat in between uh, there and attached to uh, Moldova. So obviously. There's activity going on there, and it's unexplained. Looks like terrorist activity. Looks like sabotage. Who could be behind it? Who knows? Mm. Uh, but here, here's the one that's really, really concerning, which is Transnistria, um, and this is basically a um, uh, a breakaway republic. It's not officially recognized uh, by every country, um, but this uh, straddles the side. There's been terrorist attacks there as well. Now. Uh, the largest arms depot in Europe is located here, Mike, in Transnistria. Um, so uh, would Ukraine want to step over the border into this territory? I doubt it. I doubt it. Not only are there Russian special forces uh, stationed there, Mike, um, but I, I think more this would be in terms of NATO. Uh, let's take a look at the map here. In terms of what NATO wants, Romania is a NATO country. So Romania is there. They have access. NATO has access into Moldova and Transnistria via Romania. I believe NATO would like to create an incident where they could establish a buffer zone, mm. somewhere in Transnistria or Moldova, and that would allow NATO its foothold uh, into this conflict uh, a little bit closer, uh, rather than you know obviously they're in Poland. Uh, there's no secret there, and they're doing activities out of Romania, but they'd like to push things a little bit further and possibly. Uh, antagonize Russia. It might be in Moldova, Mike. That might be the easiest foothold for NATO to get involved in this war and accelerate things and uh, raise the tension and hopefully raise the alarm for World War III. They would love to get their boots in uh, in Moldova in order to provoke or antagonize Russia. Meanwhile, Russia's looking at Transnistria as a potential uh, join, uh, joining up uh, region uh, with southern Ukraine. Uh, should Odessa um, fall, mm -hmm. uh, the Ukraines lose control, uh, Kiev loses control of Odessa. It's just further along the Black Sea coast, as you can see that map there. If you just go a little bit uh, east uh, there, you'll, you'll run into Odessa. Uh, it's not a big area. Geographically, we're talking about a very small area here, Mike. Um, but you can see this, uh, we think this is where NATO has got their eyes and their uh, saboteurs and their agent provocateurs and their spooks and everybody, it's probably just crawling with it in this region right now.
So um, extremely worrying in a sense, but um, I think I don't I don't think Russia is going to have a very difficult time managing that personally, uh, just because of the amount of assets they already have on the ground there and nearby and in Crimea as well. Plus, there's the missile, um, the missile factor as well, which Russia has demonstrated it's able to hit targets in Western Ukraine very accurately, even underground. Uh, targets as well with hypersonic missiles. So, you know, we're really playing with fire here if NATO wants to expand the theater. Um, this this can't be good good news. But someone in NATO wants it to happen. It seems like it anyway. Yes. The way they're talking about it. Uh, well, on Wednesday, we were talking about the fact that uh, Ursula von der Leyen had been in, in India, uh, following on from Boris's trip to India, and it, because they, they are so desperate to get India uh, split away from Russia. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. But uh, She's been in the press again. Well, it's it's not so much Ursula as well. She just happens to be the head of the European Commission. Uh, Commission. But here, you, you've probably heard Bulgaria and Poland, uh, Russia cut off the gas. And so Ursula and crew in Brussels are calling this blackmail. Mm. Okay, so what happened? Russia changed its terms of payments here on gas to Europe from, from Gazprom. Uh, and they said April 1st, it's payment in rubles or there's no gas. We'll give you a month to sort your stuff out. And if you haven't done it by then, then Putin says, right, we're cutting it off. We can't afford to give free energy in this climate, they, uh, Dmitry Peskov says. We'd right. love to give you free energy, but we can't. But you're going to have to pay in rubles, unfriendly countries they're talking about. Of course. So Poland and Bulgaria here are, are, are now basically drawing off of their neighbors and their reserve gas. How long can they do that for? Not very long. The problem here, Mike, is there's other countries that are paying in rubles in the EU because the European Commission has more or less given this a wink and a nod mm -hmm. that it's workable, that they can do it. Germany seems to believe that this is okay. So what's going on with Bulgaria and Poland? What's, what's interesting about those two countries? Both of those two countries have a very hyperactive U.S. embassy uh, in both Poland and Bulgaria that exert a tremendous amount of control over the media, and especially in Bulgaria. Diliana uh, Gitinier has told us a lot about that mm -hmm. side of things, uh, and also in Poland. Poland's kind of like a kept protectorate now. Well, well, there's that, but, but we also have to always keep in mind that Poland's uh, ruling party at the moment is vitriolic uh, against Russia. They absolutely despise Russia. They despise Putin. Uh, they still blame Putin for the crash of the... Uh, uh, of the plane which cra uh, killed Kaczynski's brother, uh, who right and and so and a lot of the Polish uh, government at the time, uh, as they were going to uh, to commemorate this the uh, Katyn massacre, they were flying to Smolensk. So Smolensk, yes, yes. that's right. So uh, so the Polish, this particular Polish regime, is rapidly anti-Russian, and and uh, they could not be convinced otherwise. Sure, I can't imagine who else would have benefited from that plane crash. It doesn't seem like Russia would have hmm. uh, at all, but they've been blamed for it, and that dictates foreign policy. Does indeed by Poland. Isn't that interesting how that all works out, and the Skripal poisoning um, as well. So so back to Ursula. We'll put her back up on screen. So what's the problem? How come some European countries can do this ruble transaction and others? can't. Why won't they comply? Well, you mentioned the political side of it as well. So now they're all arguing amongst each other. And now the European Commission is now arguing with member states. So there's some, some chaos going on here. What's the cause of this chaos? What is this sanctions package about? How does it work with gas purchases? Well, we've done a little explainer 
uh, for you here. Let's take a look at this. This is a, a, a UK column special animated explainer here. So we're going to call this rubles for gas explainer. So this is the best thing that you're probably going to see. Uh, you won't see this in the mainstream media. And if any politicians are watching, we apologize. It's very complicated, but we tried to make it as simple as we can for, for, them. for them and mainstream journalists, because I know none of you have written about it not to any great degree anyway, although there's some good piece in the Financial Times uh, about it. So here's Gazprom Bank, okay, Gazprom Bank. So this is not a sanctioned bank, okay, this is uh, exempt from European sanctions. That's the Russian bank there. They handle all the transactions for Russian gas. Gazprom's the biggest provider, partly state-owned there in Russia, one of the, the biggest supplier uh, to Europe. So here's Germany, a typical client here. In fact, that's their number one client. There's the German uh, Democratic uh, Republic there. So Germany wants some Russian gas. This is what Germany wants. They want a little bit of natural gas. How are they going to get that, though, with sanctions? Well, Russia's come up with a crafty little program in order to make this happen uh, without sort of really violating sanctions, not in a big way anyway. Um, so here we go. Uh, Germany needs euros. So they take their euros here. They want some Russian gas. See that pipe up there, Mike? It's empty. We need to fill that up, right? So uh, Germany's going to open two accounts in Gazprom here, one euro account and one account in rubles. Now that one in rubles, that's where the problem is, okay? So what do we do? We're going to deposit Germany, deposit some euros into their euro account inside Gazprom Bank, and then they need to transfer that money into the rubles account just like this. Okay, there's only one problem here, Mike, and it's this. <laughs> Those rubles um, are going to be facilitated by the Russian Central Bank, and we can't have that because they're sanctioned. You can see Ursula is having a fit right now, saying, no, 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 you can't involve the Russian Central Bank. So what happens? Look, those euros go into the Gazprom account. Now, in normal conditions, Mike, that would be enough to get the gas. And the Russia would say, yeah, that's fine. That transaction's clear. We'll send you your gas. But now because the United States has stolen 300 billion of Russian foreign currency reserves in foreign banks, normally Gazprom could do business in lots of different banks. Now because of sanctions and, and other Russian banks and middlemen and the Russian central bank and because of sanctions, now it's a problem. Now everything has to be managed and handled within this little tight circle. And this is a problem. So Europe's a little bit confused and they're a little bit frustrated because of this little master move here. What happens to those euros? They then get they, they get auctioned in an internal Forex auction for Russian importers who need foreign currency for certain things that aren't on the sanctions list. Okay. And then those will, they will be then transferred into rubles. Okay. And then Gazprom will take its commission or whatever it needs to do it administratively. Um, so here's the thing. So there's a little bit of, a, of an exception there. Now, Ursula and the EU, they don't want the Russian Central Bank to be involved in this because they're sanctioned, but they're going to have to look the other way. They've made it so nuanced and so petty. It's caused arguments amongst the European members, and Brussels is scratching its head. Germany just kind of wants to get on with business. The uh, industrialists in Germany have had enough. They need their energy. They need their baseload. The economy, the inflation, it's hurting the Germans. So uh, the, the transaction is clearing, and this is what happens. Germany gets its natural gas, and hey, everybody is happy, especially that man right there. He's got the industrialist off his back. The gas is flowing. The energy is flowing. 
everybody's happy, right? And then Putin is just off to the side. And at this master move by Vladimir Putin, this one small little move, uh, that second uh, part of the transaction from euros to rubles within the Gazprom bank is the one that's driving them crazy uh, in Brussels. So did he need to do that? That's the question. No, this was a political move by Russia. This is Russia basically uh, getting involved and, and gouging out a loophole within European sanctions. So you could say this is more like a political move by Russia to exert its sovereignty over this international uh, sanctions regime, but doing it in the most subtle way um, through through this sort of technical uh, transaction that they've added in there, and it's right. driving them crazy. It does set a precedent, though, Mike, because technically they are dealing with the Russian central bank, and they are sanctioned. So there could be a, a case where another situation is going to come up, and they're going to have to make that exception again, because they're going to say, hey, well, we're dealing with the Russian central bank here, so why not do it over here? Yeah. So again, who's in front? Who's setting the pace on this? Who's disrupted the European sanctions plan? It's Russia. And they've done it in, in, incredibly cleverly, although this is going to frustrate a lot of people, uh, unfortunately. So uh, the, bigger, the bigger economies, they don't want to mess around. Um, they need to do something because they're in dire straits. Yes. The smaller countries, Bulgaria, Poland, they don't buy or rely so much uh, on Russian gas as some of the other larger countries. Um, but there's all sorts of problems that are going to arise from this that we, have, we, we can't even um, anticipate. Like EDF, for instance. EDF buys gas from Poland. Or they, have, they work on an open market, you know, buying their stuff at the lowest yeah. price from here or there. So when you have supplies contract like this, and when you have sanctions, it causes huge problems. So what happens with EDF? Who's the biggest provider in Britain? It's EDF. EDF. What's going to happen to British energy prices? They're going to go up because of things that are going on on the continent. They shouldn't have anything to do uh, with Britain. And so we are connected to this in a big, big way. Right. So Ursula von der Leyen, she's the president of the European Commission. Uh, she's the sort of person who's uh, running all this at the moment. Let's take a look at her. Now, let's learn a little bit about Ursula because we thought we'd just take this opportunity to show her background. And this is how she, her claim to fame was as a folk singer here. Uh, this is a young Ursula. You can see circled in the red there, uh, the uh, Albrecht uh, family. That's, one, that's her former name there uh, before she got married. So Ursula Albrecht. And uh, she was a folk singer. That was her claim to fame. That's how she got started. Uh, she's a child of uh, European uh, bureaucrats uh, and technocrats and German politicians. So she's from a political mm -hmm. uh, family, you could say. But uh, let's look at her background because it is very interesting. It's worth noting how she rose to the position that she's in right now. And so this is Ursula von der Leyen there. 1978, enrolled at the London School of Economics under the name Rose Ladson. So she enrolled at LSE under a pseudonym. Very bizarre. Uh, years later, she said that she was she feared or family feared that far left extremists were targeting German politicians at the time. So she needed to change her name in London. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of that stuff wasn't really happening in London, Mike. So it's hard to realize what's going on here. Was she <laughs> an intelligence asset in being groomed at a young age, who knows? We're all we're only speculating on this. We can only go by uh, the, uh, the the media reports. Very strange, though. Uh, London for me. This is when she was a, a, a swinging uh, early twenty year old here. London for me then was the epitome of modernity, freedom, the joy of life, trying everything. I can't imagine what that phrase entails. 
You can use your imagination if you wish. She loved punk and rock concerts and going out partying, uh, telling the publication that she spent a significantly more time in the bars of Soho and in record stores in Camden than in the library. This is Vogue magazine. Set her up well for the uh, for her future career then in the European Union because it's a big party there as well. <laughs> right, and politics in Germany here. So that's Ursula's story there. Well, look, we'll just go a little further here. This gets interesting. She did a doctorate, uh, she, she is a medical degree at University of Hanover, I believe. Um, her doctoral thesis is alleged to contain 43% plagiarized material, 23 cases of dodgy citations. This was a study done by Ronnie Plagg, uh, Wiki, and this has been confirmed by a number of other media outlets. So, and in her, she, they didn't revoke her medical degree. That's the thing. They made an exception for her. A lot of pressure was put on the university, you know, take her degree away. They didn't. She was protected, probably because of who her family is. So that's, that's interesting. So you have a dodgy doctorate thesis there. And 2005, 2013, various German cabinet positions, Mike Secretary for Family and Youth, uh, later Labor and Social Affairs. Certainly, you'd look at that CV right there and you think, well, she's perfectly qualified for what? Well, of course, the defense minister of Germany, right? <laughs> there she is in 2013, defense minister. Now, just after this is where her career really took off. And something interesting happened here, Mike, after 2013. In the year 2016, just three years later, Ursula von der Leyen was appointed board of trustees for the World Economic Forum. Uh -huh. And this is where her career really took off. She was an obscure cabinet minister. Uh, under Angela Merkel, um, nothing really important. She managed to, to move into that defense minister position with zero experience in anything related to anything like that. And there, boom, World Economic Forum. And from there, uh, here we go, just so we know, what, Global Trustees uh, Board here for the, for the WEF, it's 2016. And you can see, there she is. And it almost looks like she's taking orders there from Herr Schwab, she's present and correct there, and Klaus is uh, questioning her about the Davos agenda. So, but that's where things really took off for Ursula. And so soon after that, 2019, president of the European Commission. Talk about a mercurial rise to power there, Mike. Yes. Uh, and especially those last two steps were completely unelected. Um, these are appointed positions, well, as were the uh, cabinet positions as well. Although she was an MP, she had a local constituency in Germany. But isn't it interesting, Mike, how once she became um, basically baked in to Davos, then she, she walked straight into the European Commission position. Look at all the policies that she's pushing in the last two years, especially regarding the digital ID, uh, regarding vaccinations, vaccine passports. Um, and, and the WAF have, have been pushing all of those projects for years. And here's her husband, uh, Heiko. Uh, von der Leyen, and Heiko is the medical director of a U.S. biotech company, uh, Orgenesis, which specializes in, well, cell and gene therapies. Now, they don't work on mRNA uh, specifically. I don't know if that's in their portfolio, but just about everything else in the world of gene therapy. So she, he, she, he's in the biotech business. They're in the biotech business. Um, so there is a slight conflict of interest there. Slight? Slight, yeah. So, and uh, here's his company here for those people. You can just see all of the different therapy pipelines here, uh, immuno-oncology, uh, a lot of viral diseases here with gene therapy, HPV vaccines, 
HPV, hepatitis, everything, basically. So this is a very much a WEF gene therapy future, okay? And her husband is right in the center of that. Yeah. So we, we just thought it's a little bit of interesting background. You should know who the European uh, Commission's president is and her background. Yes. Okay. Right. Thank you for that. Now let's uh, let's go across the Atlantic now. And uh, Joe Biden uh, and you were talking about uh, kleptocrats earlier on. <clears throat> Joe Biden had something to say about kleptocrats uh, yesterday, or maybe not. In addition to this supplemental funding, <clears throat> I'm also sending to Congress a comprehensive package of uh, that will enhance our underlying effort to accommodate the Russian oligarchs uh, and make sure we take their, take their, their ill-begotten gains. <laughs> We're going to accommodate them. We're going to seize their yachts, their luxury homes, and other ill-begotten gains of Putin's kleptocracy, uh, yeah, kleptocracy, and klep the guys who are the kleptocracies. <laughs> painful. It is painful. Painful. It's painful, and but so let's let's put this on screen. Here is the but, fact. But, but sorry, just, okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, no, I just want to say, look, you, we are laughing, but you're watching a president who is experiencing early symptoms of Parkinson's disease. If you look at the symptoms of Parkinson's, you look how Biden shuffles the way he walks. It's really disturbing, and you see things like this. This is regular, by the way. Mm. This is just one of the ones that people are highlighting. He's been doing this now for the last two years, and it's really sad. And what's even more frightening, Mike, is the fact he's president, but go ahead. Well, so let's uh, put the fact sheet uh, that the White House has released on this. President Biden's comprehensive proposal to hold Russian oligarchs and elites accountable. Now, uh, he is accusing, uh, he is saying that he is going to stand up to uh, Russian kleptocrats, if he could pronounce the word, right? But what is this fact sheet saying? Let's have a look. Establishing a streamlined administrative authority to seize and forfeit oligarch assets. This proposal aims to streamline the process of seizure of oligarch assets, expand the assets subject uh, to seizure, and enable the proceeds to flow to Ukraine. Now, we've got to keep in mind here, the only reason this is happening is because uh, the US and the UK claim that Russia is carrying out illegal acts. These oligarchs, no matter what you might think about them, haven't done anything illegal. That money, those assets have been bought and paid for uh, or generated as a result of business dealings that they've had abroad from Russia. Uh, so if, uh, if, yes, if three or four weeks ago those assets were not illegal, they're only illegal because the US government has said they're illegal because of a, a perceived conflict by the Russian state, nothing to do with the individuals concerned directly. Is that not kleptocracy right there? This is kleptocracy. The other thing about this is how do you define an oligarch? This is going to become any Russian that has an income or a net worth of like over $2 million or something will be classed as a Putin oligarch. Some of them have no connection as well. In fact, the majority of them, the reason they are overseas, Mike, is because they don't get along with the Putin government and they spend more time outside of the country than they do in it. Right. It's common sense. It's always been that way. But what is this? This is right. just theft. Well, yes, it is just <laughs> theft. But what are they going to do with it? Because this is the important thing. Uh, enabling the transfer of the proceeds of forfeited kleptocrat property. So we're going to be kleptocrats. We're going to steal the property from people we accuse of being kleptocrats. And we're going to divert <laughs> that money into Ukraine to remediate harms of Russian aggression. No, they're not. They're going to forfeit that. They're going to t steal that money and they're going to transfer the proceeds of that to push more arms 
into Ukraine and keep this conflict going. They're going to steal that money and give it to the defense contractors because that's who gets the cash right. at the end of the day. And then the weapons or the old weapons or whatever get dumped in Ukraine, and it's a giant cra a trash compactor. Ukraine is the NATO's trash compactor. That's what it is. It's the, it's the, it's the graveyard for old arms that are going to get, quote, backfilled with the latest and the newest. That's all this is. This is an incredible opportunistic power play by the military industrial complex. I don't even want to get into the power play from the US uh, LNG fracking industry on this. Right. I mean, that, that, that is the mother of all power plays. They're, they're treating Europe like a local mafia boss would treat the neighborhood in a total protection racket. And they're basically, they're, they've amped up a war and now they're saying they, they put the sanctions down and guess what? U.S. shale gas is, is, is going, going through the roof. Yeah. And so that's what this, if you really want to look at what's really behind this conflict and why the U.S. and NATO have pushed Ukraine uh, to basically draw Russia into this situation, firstly in Donbass mm. and now to extend into Ukraine, um, it's about the total domination of the European gas market by the United States of America. If you really want to look at the numbers, they are shocking. You can go right now and check out the uh, the, the trade uh, publications on this, and they're projecting it to go through the roof until the year 2050. Okay. Yeah. So this is that's what this is about. If I if you thought Iraq was an oil power play, um, this is an oil or an oil and gas power play. Yes. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there, and that would be very much needed and appreciated. Or you could uh, pick something up at the UK Column shop, which is at shop.ukcolumn.org. Uh, but in any, any case, please do share any of our material you find on the various platforms. Um, I'm just going to mention the <clears throat> early day motion that we talked about on Wednesday. This is EDM 1177, campaign to oppose extradition of Julian Assange. Uh, to the USA. There have been a few more uh, MPs have signed onto that. Um, so that is, I think, 21 in total, uh, the six uh, sponsors, uh, plus these, this group that you can see on screen at the moment. Uh, if you haven't written to your MP on this yet, I suggest you do, or would encourage that at the very least, because uh, although, as we said on Wednesday, an EDM doesn't have any legal standing, uh, since it's now in the hands of Pretty Patel to make a decision about whether Assange is extradited or not, then I think it's important that uh, as many MPs as possible put a line in the sand to say that uh, they disagree with that extradition. And, and it's a reflection of their constituencies, isn't it? Um, if their MPs are taking that particular action, it shows that their constituents generally will be behind them on that. Yes. Now, uh, many people asking what they can do, and I just we want to applaud anybody that's taking any action on the issue of Ukraine and the Ukraine war. So here's uh, Angela, Angela Fettis. Uh, and uh, I just want to show uh, a little bit of video. Um, let's just watch this and then we'll comment on the letter and the information that she gave to the Ukrainian embassy uh, a day or so ago. So I'm going to be delivering a letter today to the Ukrainian embassy with two documents. Um, the first document is this document here. It's the OSCE report, which stands for the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe. It comprises of 57 states, which include Europe, Central Asia, 
in North America and it was published on the 15th of April 2016. The conclusion that was drawn by the report was that Ukrainian forces were systematically and knowingly violating Article 3 of the Human Rights Act. People could be arrested arbitrarily just for having contacts with people that were pro-Russian or having protests. And these arbitrary arrests and that's of the Ukrainians arresting the Ukrainian people. Yeah, that's right. Now, people who were detained, um, prisoners were electrocuted, beaten cruelly and for multiple days in a row with different objects, iron bars, baseball bats, sticks, rifle butts, bayonet knives, rubber batons. Techniques widely used by the Ukrainian armed forces. This was in the war uh, in the Donbass region mainly, but also in other parts of Ukraine. Um. How do you do? Are you, are you looking for My name is Miss King. Hello. Uh, I'm Deputy Ambassador. The Ambassador? For Deputy Ambassador. Deputy Ambassador. Can I please give you a package which contains two documents that have been for the last eight years? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, yeah. I've Thank got you a letter very much. In there. One's from the UN. Uh, the other one's. Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll, take a, we'll have a look. Um, and I've got my name and my email on there. And if you could just please pass over a comment because these documents really do concern me. And the reports of what's happened to people in Ukraine. Thanks very much. There's a lot going on. We will have a look and, and you have just con your contacts there. Okay, so I don't know what you thought of that, but I thought that was, uh, I really like seeing people taking that kind of action, particularly calm and polite as it was. Not only that, she's well informed. She's done, she's done her research. She's got her paperwork, her, her homework in front of her, and she's presenting facts. Okay. And it would be nice if the media was doing that too. And this really also just, I won't belabor this point, Mike, but it kind of speaks to the wider uh, theme that we're being gaslit, uh, especially in, in the West, that uh, Ukraine is this gold standard uh, for democracy. Right. And this isn't actually the case. It's one of the most corrupt countries uh, in the world. Uh, they've made opposition parties illegal. Opposition media is illegal. Everything comes under one state umbrella. No wonder the uh, the NATO countries love them so much. Right. They, they'd love to be doing that at home, wouldn't they? Um, they kill and torture uh, a number of journalists. We're talking about dozens of journalists here. The list is way too long. It's longer than any country probably on the planet right now, maybe even more than Saudi Arabia. Torturing and summarily execution of POWs mm. as a regular practice. Uh, also, using civilians as human shields as policy. This is Ukrainian military policy. Now, if they're being advised by NATO, is that not de facto NATO policies? Is NATO telling them to use humans as human shields? I don't see anybody protesting about this practice mm -hmm. from NATO countries, so I assume their silence is an endorsement of this practice. That's a war crime, okay? And not only that, when we talked about the trash compactor that is Ukraine, is it's a it's trash compactor for arms. That's because Russia is liquidating a large amount of the weapons that we're sending there. And those that aren't being liquidated are being uh, reappropriated uh, to the uh, forces in Donbass, the, the Donetsk and Lugansk forces. 
Uh, and the other ones, a lot of them won't even make it to the front line. The U.S. has even called it a black hole. Some of them are ending up on the black market. So that's where our public money is going, yeah. uh, basically. It w the, none of these arms are going to make any material difference in the outcome of this conflict, only that they're going to extend the length of it. And that's what most uh, sensible experts uh, have said. Unfortunately, you won't read any sensible experts uh, in the Western media, not many of them anyway. Yes. So Angela there speaking to the uh, deputy Ukrainian ambassador. You saw his image at the end of that. Uh, uh, she, the letter that she included uh, in the, uh, I'll just read a little bit of this. It's come to the attention of myself and the other and other UK citizens that since 2014, the Ukrainian government has been engaged in the arbitrary arrest and torture of its own citizens either by the security service of Ukraine or the armed forces. Evidence for these war crimes is documented by the OSCE. Uh, second report published on the 15th of April 2016 uh, and in a document by the United Nations Human Rights Office of the Commissioner uh, entitled Arbitrary Detention, Torture and Ill-Treatment uh, in the Context of Armed Conflict. And she goes on to ask them uh, to uh, give uh, a response uh, to this. Uh, and of course, uh, if she gets a response, we'll let everybody know about it. Yeah, and by the way, the OSCE was caught um, uh, giving feeding intelligence uh, on the on the contact line uh, in Donbass to Ukrainian armed forces target information. Um, this is why they were kicked out right. uh, of there. So they they were implicated in a really horrible scandal. Actually, you know, working working on behalf of the Ukrainian military, giving target information. That's supposed to be a neutral uh, organization. Uh, organization, unfortunately. Um, you know, maybe the organization's neutral, but not all the people, uh, operatives that are embedded in it are, unfortunately. Yes. Okay. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we reported that the Russians were uh, planning on uh, pegging their uh, currency, the ruble, to gold. Uh, well, just want to give an update on that because uh, Nikolai uh, Petrushev, who's the uh, Russian National Security Advisor, uh, has made a comment on this, saying that Russia is working on linking the price of the ruble uh, to bullion and other commodities. Uh, he said the provision of the Russian currency with both gold uh, and a range of goods representing a currency value. Uh, as a result, the ruble exchange rate would correspond to its real purchasing power parity. Uh, to ensure the sovereignty of any national financial system, it's necessary that it has a means of payment, that its means of payment have intrinsic value and price stability and is not tied to the dollar. And that uh, final point there, Patrick, is particularly important because, of course, he's saying it's that a, a uh, to ensure sovereignty, it's necessary that its means of payment has an intrinsic value and price stability. And of course, uh, since dollars are being printed uh, in to levels we've never seen before in history, uh, that can never be said of the dollar. So it's very key that any uh, currency is not tied to the dollar because the dollar is going down. Yeah, and this is one of the the byproducts of this whole crisis and this sanctions by the West, Mike, is they've uh, they've they've created an opportunity for Russia to uh, uh, make their currency more of a hard currency. Um, they, they, Russia has no choice. It, it needed to do that. And guess what? Look at, have you seen how the rubles performed in the last week? Yeah. Uh, Two-year high. Yes. Two-year high against the dollar and the euro. So, hey, sanctions are working, right? That's what we're told. Well, it depend, depends what it, the purpose of them is. I think you, they're working very well. If you say they're not working, then you're parroting uh, Russian disinformation, yeah. uh, according to our, um, our, our great and the good. Uh, in the West, Russian disinformation. So when is that whole trope uh, going to be put to bed? Not anytime soon. Look what's happening in the United States. Well, I was just going to say, you know, the the whole uh, we're going to talk a bit more in a second about uh, online safety and so on. But 
that you're doing a better job than the British government is at the moment, it seems. Well, in the U.S., look at this. The Department of Homeland Security has created a disinformation governance board, uh, appointing a leader who peddled disinformation about Hunter Biden laptop, Trump dossier, etc. But this is the Department of Homeland Security that has created this, this new governance board. Mike, this is the Ministry of Truth. Uh, here is uh, Mr. Uh, Alejandro Mayorkas. He's the DHS secretary appointed by Biden. Uh, he said they're, they're doing this to stop, quote, Russian disinformation mm -hmm. and disinformation at the border. And he's complaining that uh, 14,000 Haitians showed up to the U.S. southern border in Texas thinking they'd get a free ride uh, into the country. And he can't imagine, uh, he can't imagine how they got that idea. He claims it's from uh, social media, right-wing pro-Trump social media. It's actually himself, his own words. Uh, we could pull up multiple clips where this gentleman who you're seeing on screen now basically said that uh, in, in no uncertain terms that the U.S. southern border was open and we're welcome, welcoming the needy uh, and the, the vulnerable and whatnot. Um, so the open border policy had backfired massively. And now they're using their own mistake uh, partially to justify this uh, crazy thing. Right. Here's Secretary Mayorkas here. We cannot stress this is a massive Orwellian power grab. We're hoping that it's not going to make it, but uh, at the moment, the Biden administration is pushing forward with this. Watch Mayorkas here to talk about his, uh, his aspirations on this. We have so many different efforts underway to equip local communities uh, to identify individuals who very well could be descending into violence uh, by reason of ideologies of hate, false narratives, or, or other um, disinformation and misinformation propagated on social media and other platforms. So first of all, how, how do you define disinformation, mm. misinformation, false narratives? Someone might become violent because they're being driven by false narratives on social media. So that's pre-crime, effectively. No one's bothering to try to even define what this means. Misinformation, disinformation. Is this anything that the ruling party doesn't like? Is that is that yes? Is that what it is? That's what it is. Or anything the government or the mainstream media doesn't like, or anything that undermines criminal policies that are being undertaken by our governments? That's disinformation. Yes. Or misinformation. So I mean, this this is the ultimate slippery slope. This is the ultimate power grab. This is the ultimate power grab. The Department of Homeland Security was created in the wake of 9/11 by a rabid neocon Bush administration mm -hmm. to tackle the specter of the global war on terror, okay? They already had things in place in, in, in 2000 to protect the country, but they created what became the biggest, most well-funded of all federal agencies, mm -hmm. the DHS. It was a subcontractor and a contractor gravy train. A lot of people made millions mm -hmm. out of this. A lot of contractors got in and basically like parasites and they haven't stopped sucking the public blood out since, okay? Now they want to use this, this abrogation of U.S. Uh, constitutional uh, Republican government, they want to use it now as a ministry of truth. Yes. You can't make it up. And what's worse, who are they putting in charge of this? The Biden has appointed a, uh, somebody that is just unbelievable. Her name is Nina Jankovitz. And she herself, this is the person heading this, the head of censorship uh, at this new Ministry of Truth. And this is what she said. We'll put this up. This is from Twitter. 
This is her back in October 2020, Mike. Uh, back on the laptop from hell, apparently Biden notes 50 former national security officials and five former CIA heads that believe the laptop is a Russian influence op. Trump says Russia, Russia, Russia. Now, she was feeding this talking point to Biden while he was in the debate, and he repeated this exact thing right. in the debate. Twitter and the mainstream media colluded, conspired to suppress and bury this story right before the election that could have arguably, had it broke, changed the, the result of the election. Mm. We won't even get into voter fraud in that conversation. Just on this basis, the polling has showed that this would have been a consequential story right. had it broke. She is one of the people feeding the president this talking point in her previous uh, capacity. And she follows it up here. Look at this. The IC, that means the intelligence community in America, nobody knows exactly what that is, has a degree of confidence that the Kremlin used proxies to push influence narratives, uh, including misleading and unsubstantiated claims about President Biden to the U.S. media officials, influencers, uh, some close to President Trump. A clear nod to the alleged Hunter laptop. This is a year later, Mike, um, uh, in 20, or not a year, six months later in 2021. So she was still banging on that the laptop was a Russian influence op. Clearly it wasn't. We all knew it wasn't. Now it's been officially acknowledged uh, by the New York Times, by uh, law enforcement, that it is a legitimate story. It is a real laptop and it's got damning uh, evidence on it. So that's Nina Jankovic. But let's take a look at this new censorship czar here. She's an author, Mike. Well, this is her self-proclaimed uh, description here. Author and internationally recognized expert on disinformation and misinformation. That's one of her books there, How to Be a Woman Online. You can imagine what that's about. She must be uh, friends with Mariana Spring at the BBC. Uh, it's, uh, they seem to be quite similar rhetoric coming from them both. Yeah, she's an interesting one. This one is interesting. So here's another one of her books here, Mike. How to Lose the Information War, Russia, Fake News, and the Future of Conflict by Nina Jankovitz. So, I mean, I haven't read any of these books, but I, I, I've got a rough idea, Mike, of what's uh, contained yes. uh, between the covers. Uh, you can probably check out the reviews on Amazon if you want to get uh, some cliff notes on this. But anyway, there she is. Now, that's the sassy kind of, you know, uh, author there, you know, MSNBC doing like spots on, on, on whatever on The View. That's that look, okay? But that's not the Nina Jankovic we're interested in, Mike. Right. We're interested in this Nina Jankovic. Oh, there she is. That's her, that's her profile picture on Twitter. So she's uh, proudly displaying the Ukrainian flag. Uh, there, she's got some kind of ethnic uh, momo on there. I'm not sure where that's from. But anyway, here we go. This is what I thought is the key here, Mike. Jankovic was an advisor to the Ukrainian government on strategic communications under the auspices of the Fulbright Clinton Public Policy Fellowship. So that's the person in charge of policing, disinformation, ultimately she'll be in charge of deplatforming. Yes. They will be leaning on social media companies to uh, erase accounts, not just censor, literally erase accounts and, and disappear people uh, from the public space. This is the person they're putting in charge of this. Now that's, that's shocking, isn't it, Mike? Would you agree that this is problematic? It is problematic, for sure. And would you agree on, on a scale of one to 10, how, how shocked are you there? that this is actually happening and how bad this looks just from what we've showed you? Well, I'm not shocked that, the, that this policy has been pursued in the United States. I've been waiting to see how it was going to manifest itself because clearly uh, UK is doing it. 
EU's doing it. And what was the United States going to do? There was no legislation that I could see coming down the pipe. So they've avoided the legislative mm -hmm. part of it uh, 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 totally and just gone straight for the uh, Department for Homeland Security. Brilliant. So on a scale of one to 10, how, how shocked are you? Just give me, give me a number. Well, 10, let's Give say. me a 10. Yeah. Okay. To, to paraphrase Spinal Tap, this one goes 11. to 11. Right, Roll okay. the video. Here she is, Nina Jankovic. Watch this. Information laundering is really quite ferocious. It's when a huckster takes some lies and makes them sound precocious by saying them in Congress or a mainstream outlet. So disinformation's origins are slightly less atrocious. It's how you hide a little, hide a little lie. It's how you hide a little, hide a little lie. It's how you hide a little, hide a little lie. When Rudy Giuliani shared that intel from Ukraine, or when TikTok influencers say COVID can cause pain, they're laundering disinfo, and we really should take note and not support their lies with our wallet, voice, or vote. Oh. Now, probably appropriate for us to end the show there, Mike. Um, but the show must go on. It, what are your impressions on that? I think she is the perfect person for the job. What Amazing. can we say? Amazing. Now, this is getting a, this is getting a lot of pushback in the U.S. Okay, Biden Biden's not in charge. Let's not kid ourselves. It's the gaggle around Biden who are absolutely uh, complete maniacs, totally partisan, totally hyster hysterical. They put someone like that as a censorship czar. The, the fact that there is even they're trying to put a censorship uh, department in in the Homeland Security. Uh, umbrella is is shocking enough, and to put a person like that in charge of it is just mind blowing. Okay, there's going to be pushback, like we saw with SOPA a few years ago. You remember SOPA? Yes. That was a bit of a power grab. That got pushed back. Didn't work. I, I think this might meet a similar fate. Me personally, I, I'm advocating for the dismantling of the Department of Homeland Security, full stop. Yes. And save the federal government a cool 300 billion per year, because that's basically what it costs. Um, okay. Yes. So look, this censorship agenda, of course, began in the UK, EU not far behind, US catching up very quickly now. But let's look at what the EU and international partners are putting forward. Uh, they have now issued a declaration for the future of the internet. Patrick, it's brilliant stuff. Let's look first of all at who the partners are. Uh, so aside from the EU and the United States, we've got everything from Albania, Iceland, uh, Jamaica, the UK, of course, is on there, New Zealand, uh, Kosovo, Japan, Israel, Georgia, Ukraine. Uh, so it's the usual suspects here, okay? Uh, and uh, giving a speech uh, or uh, making a statement following the UK signing of this uh, declaration, uh, Nadine Dorries uh, had this to say, as open societies, we should be clear that we will resist attempts to bring the internet under restrictive government control or to regulate it through concentrated top-down processes. Now, assuming she's actually compass mentis, um, she's either lying because she knows very well about what's going on in her own legislation uh, and in the United States and in the EU. It sounds good, though. It sounds good, but we've got to remember that her online safety bill is talking about legal but harmful content. It's talking about secondary legislation is how that's going to be defined. It's talking about... Uh, content which is legal but will be censored and this of course with respect to the uh, print media and and uh, st that are publishing online but also alternative media online uh, and so on and also people using social media but it's now the same policy moving to broadcast media so the government has published uh, a white paper it's called up next this is the government's vision 
for the broadcasting sector. Uh, and so they're talking about uh, significant changes uh, overhauling the landscape for UK broadcasters. New legislation will ensure that their content, well, let's look and have a, see what the, what the three main points are. Streaming platforms uh, to give prominence to public service broadcasters. So in other words, if you are YouTube or you are uh, any streaming platform, Roku, uh, any of the, the uh, Amazon, for example, if you've got an Amazon stick and you're, you're, if you've got a smart TV, uh, anybody that's providing a streaming platform uh, will be required to give prominence to public service broadcasters. That's the BBC and Channel 4 at present, but how long will it just be the BBC and Channel 4? Uh, let's move on to the next bit. Streamers will be required to protect the public from harmful content. So this the same type of censorship that we're going to see from the online safety bill is now moving across to this uh, uh, broadcasting legislation, which will come in the not too distant future. And finally here, uh, only public service broadcasters will get rights to major sporting events. So what does that mean? That's going to put pressure on private companies to become public service broadcasters. And once they become broad public broad, uh, service broadcasters, well, they're effectively pushing a, a government narrative and only a government narrative. So let's just look at a couple of examples of public service uh, coverage. Okay, this isn't broadcasting, but coverage nonetheless, because let's bring this on screen. Uh, Ukraine war, Putin warns against foreign intervention. Uh, this is the BBC. And look at that image, Patrick. What is that image intended to, to uh, portray? Why did they choose that particular image of Putin? A responsible uh, media outlet would choose a, an image of a head of state, which was respectful to the head of state, no matter what they think of him. A warlike Putin. But this is a warlike, aggressive, angry uh, Mr. Angry Putin. But what are you insinuating, Mike? The BBC would never do propaganda. This is what the public. This is what public service. Uh, uh, the public service. Yes. yes, that's how we should say it. Not propaganda, but public, public service. service. That's right. Yes. Okay. Let's look at another one. And thanks to David Scott for pointing me at this, because this is just incredible, Patrick. Uh, are we to believe that this? Uh, uh, <laughs> yes. When he buried a missile in his front yard, or yeah, what? Right. So uh, <laughs> war in Ukraine, the village with Russia and Belarus on its doorstep, and uh, but the, the images get better. There, here's another one. That's an interesting one. This reminds me of a White Helmets forensic scene, doesn't it? Precisely. But, it's, but the White Helmets did such a better job, Mike. You have to hand it to them now. They look like pros compared to these guys. Yes. This is really embarrassing. It is embarrassing. The White Helmets haven't done enough training yet on BBC Media Action and so on. But the point here is, Patrick, that the same, uh, the same narrative control is coming to broadcast media, but also to streaming media as well as we have for the online safety bill. Uh, you, you're presenting that in the United States. The EU has now published this great declaration on the future of the internet. Uh, and uh, they've also got legislation coming, which is very similar to the online safety bill uh, at EU level. So uh, the aim here, this we are in an information war, and the, the aim here is to have complete dominance of the narrative. Yeah, this is where the real power is. Now we can see it. This is why they're going hell for leather. So they're all screaming about misinformation, disinformation. We're just calling it fake news. We're calling these hoaxes. And the amount of hoaxes and fake news that's coming out from the mainstream Western media about what's going on in Ukraine is almost like a daily uh, uh, circus, okay? It just keeps going. And they keep getting more outrageous and ridiculous as the day goes on. And we're meant to say, this is the big crime of, of, the, of Western civilization is misinformation, disinformation. Did I do that right? 
mis and disinformation. That's the way they say it now, right? Okay, this is the big crime. But, but, but when our mainstream media do it, it's okay. As long as it makes our, quote, enemy look bad. This is total political gaslighting. This is what authoritarian societies and governments do and have done throughout history. And our governments are doing it now. They've done it forever. But now they're being so bl uh, blatant about it. And they're attacking anybody that's even pointing it out mm. and accusing a critic of their fake news of, of parroting Russian disinformation and undermining trust in our democracies and media institutions. Our media, our governments are doing more to undermine trust in their institutions than anybody else could possibly ever do. Case in point, the latest one is the, the, the mass graves in Mariupol. How many of you have seen this story? over the last week or so. Mm. It's on every single media outlet. They're all screaming and blathering about the mass graves, mass graves, mass graves, mass graves. Well, the turns out an independent journalist is on the ground in Mariupol and did a report on the alleged mass graves in Mariupol. 9,000 mass graves. The Russians dumped 9,000 bodies. We've got satellite images to prove it. It turns out they have nothing. It was a hoax. Here's Eva Bartlett in Donbass. Western media is awash with new accusations against Russia, this time accusing Russia of secret burials and mass graves in a town west of the city of Mariupol. Accusations are that Russian forces threw up to 9,000 civilians into a mass grave in an effort to cover up their alleged war crimes. Reports cite Ukrainian officials, notably the former mayor of Mariupol no longer in the city, as the source of what he calls quote, barbaric war crimes, and according to him, Russians dug huge trenches 30 meters wide and chucked people in. So with journalist Roman Kosarev on April 23rd, I went to the site in question to see whether or not there actually is a mass grave. It is Saturday, April 23rd, and I'm at the site of what Western media are alleging um, are mass graves. Now, these are clearly uh, new graves. And there in the distance is um, an existing cemetery, as media have noted. This is a, a marking of a person that was born in 1941, has their name, has the date of their birth, and it's obviously a known site. Now there are also unknown graves, and they are simply numbered, but there are many that are actually marked with date of birth or at least with name. Here we go, another one, 1964. This is the second plot. These are not occupied graves. And then these are all completely empty. There's one beyond uh, for the sake of Accuracy, I'll take a jog down that way. I mean, this is just now, at this point, two rows. One of which is vacant. And then that's it, Western media. Nothing else. I've seen that back in 2015, 2014 as well, where uh, mass graves were discovered uh, um, as uh, Azov or Aydar retreated. It's in the Donetsk region. And we saw mass graves with civilians. I even saw uh, a woman that was that she was dug up. She had her arms tied behind her back 
um, when she was pregnant, like in the latest stage of pregnancies, and she had uh, a hole in her head, so that means she was executed. So mass graves is something that they do, something that they, they've done quite a bit. Um, mass graves, uh, at least uh, according to the uh, head of uh, the Nez People's Republic, Denis Pashelin, at least uh, 300 sites have been discovered since uh, 2014. Захоронение мирных людей, которых привозили из Мариуполя, первых из погибших. Это два квадрата. Вот квадрат. Этот квадрат специально предназначен для мирного населения. Всех хоронили, как говорится, под номерами, которые опись ведется в морге, особые приметы. У кого были документы на табличках указаны фамилия, имя, отчество. Всех хоронили в отдельных могилах и в гробах. Any questions? It's pretty well, clear. Clearly not mass graves. Yeah. Western media is awash with new accusations. Uh, put across the Washington Post, all of our mainstream media outlets, Fox News presenters were screaming out the top of their lungs about this shock horror, and it's fake. Yes. It's a hoax, a hoax generated by our trusted news outlets and our public service broadcasters. A hoax, fake, totally fabricated, woven out of whole cloth. Incredible. And, and we have so many examples of this, too many. We could just do a whole program on the fake news right. by our mainstream media coming out of, of Ukraine. So, I mean, so, uh. so, but yet they want to put their thumb on the scale for censorship uh, to silence any independent media or any bloggers, any journalists that, that, that might be an, a foreign journalist or any, anybody that's not uh, towing the party line. Well, of course they do, because because the mainstream press has demonstrated that in public service, it's quite happy to lie through its teeth uh, in order to, to appease uh, the government of, that it happens to be working with. And anybody that's going to uh, challenge them on that uh, should be silenced. Yeah, yeah. And, and accused of being, uh, you know, in league with uh, the Russians, yeah. whatever. Righty -ho. It's endless. Uh, okay, and we'll just uh, end quickly with this. Then this is the health and care bill, uh, which has now been made an act because uh, today it received royal assent. Uh, and, uh, well, this is all about the recovery of uh, the NHS following the so-called pandemic. Uh, and this is going to make sure that waiting lists on the NHS are uh, are reduced massively, and we're all going to be very well as a result of this, according to the government, because of thirty billion pounds or so that's going to be pushed in, thirty-six billion pounds over the next three years. But of course, we've got to remember and just remind people once again that uh, more NHS ambulances are on their way from the UK to Ukraine uh, to give vital life-saving care and humanitarian support to the people of Ukraine. But in the meantime, we continue to have headlines like this: a frail elderly mother is left screaming in pain as she waited 10 hours for an ambulance, uh, which should have arrived within 18 minutes after her desperate son was told there were none available. So uh, this is the UK uh, in 2022. Uh, we have a, a, a completely failed health system uh, and nobody is able to get frontline healthcare in this country. But in the meantime, we're exporting uh, any uh, capability to other countries. Uh, to a country where we are encouraging the conflict. It, uh, it seems like the British public are uh, suffering the most uh, as a result of uh, our government's policy here. I, I saw quite a few of those uh, ambulances myself, Mike, uh, when I was in East Aleppo. Yes. Uh, British ambulances, and um, that was interesting. That didn't work out too well, did it? No. It didn't really help, did it? Yeah. No. But um, anyway, it was terrorist-occupied 
uh, East Aleppo, recently liberated. But yeah, they needed those ambulances apparently. So yeah, that was good. Uh, and we're just going to end uh, with this uh, from the Daily Telegraph. Uh, Prince Charles backs face masks for cows uh, to help save the planet one burp at a time. You're kidding me. This is fake, isn't it? This is not fake. This is real. This is satire. This is this is not well. It's not satire. It's real. Uh, methane catching devices, an invention backed by the Prince of Wales, could be fitted to herds uh, to reduce carbon footprint of British beef. Well, it's not carbon footprint because it's about methane, first of all. But the ultimate irony is in this paragraph in the article because it says the device sits around the animal's head and captures methane emitted when it exhales. The gas travels through a micro-sized catalytic converter and is released into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide and water vapor. Can you see the problem with this, Patrick? Because this is all about cows being the great uh, global warmer of our day by creating methane. And we're going to convert the methane into carbon dioxide and water vapor, which are the two highest uh, so-called global uh, warming gases. So, so they exhale carbon dioxide. Am I wrong there? Oh, no, they do. They exhale carbon dioxide, but they also exhale methane, apparently. Methane, but, and, but we've got to capture the methane and turn that into more carbon dioxide because that's going to save the planet. Wow. But more methane uh, leaves the cow from another orifice, doesn't it? Well, some people in the Arguably. In, in the comments in this for this article did mention that. And uh, So is Prince Charles working on a, a, a neoprene... Uh, a device for the other orifices of the cow? Uh, he, I couldn't possibly has comment. Has he got that far in his cutting edge tech yet? So so this is going to lower the temperature of the planet, right? Yes. This is So this, this contraption is going to lower the Earth's temperature? Uh, apparently, yeah, yes. Right, right. Absolutely bonkers. Uh, They're anyway. mad. They're mad. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So uh, anyway, we thought we'd leave you on that note uh, for the weekend. Uh, look, we are going to do uh, a news extra today. So stick around on the live stream if you uh, are on the uh, UK column main live stream. And otherwise, uh, we hope you have a great weekend. We will see you at 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Bye bye.